respect and admire and all of you here, but he's one of the founders of uh, Fellowship of Mere Christianity and comes all the way from California. And uh, it, I, one of the reasons I respect him, if you can live for Christ in California, you're doing the job. So uh, it's much easier here in Texas sometimes. But uh, Dr. Salem, come on up, is a good man. One of the reasons he's a good man is he preaches short. Uh, <laughs> Amen. Come on. Thank man. you. We can move. I'm uh, just overwhelmed, as I always am, it seems, at these events, at what God's doing, both at Church of the King, right down the street, literally, here at Living by Faith Church, and the just beautiful building and how God supplied it, and through relatively little expense of the church, I got to thinking uh, how this building came about, you're owning the building, is described in the name of your church, Living by Faith. It's truly remarkable. Um, I don't preach very long. I've never been accused of preaching too long, and I won't be accused of that tonight. You'll be happy to hear. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to speak on an interesting uh, topic, maybe one that you've never quite heard of before. In fact, um, I never heard of it until I uh, heard some ideas and prayed about it and studied the Word of God in a, perhaps a different light than I had before. So I'm speaking on family is gospel, family is gospel, and rather than have you turn in your Bibles right now, I'm actually, unlike some ministers, going to preach for a little bit and then read the text. So I, I really am unusual and unique. Um, I'd like to begin tonight by considering uh, Mary Eberstadt's thesis that our Western culture lost God by losing the family, not vice versa, as counterintuitive as that might sound. That thesis does sound strange to us because we tend to think people become anti-God first and then anti-family as a result. But if the family is part of what the gospel means which is what I'm asserting this evening. If we lose the family, we lose the gospel, and eventually God himself. So let's consider some gospel truths in the Bible that somehow we tend to gloss over. First, let's think about the Trinity. The Trinity is a trinity of persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are real people. God is one person, but God is also three persons. There are not three gods. There is one God, but this one God is three persons. If we believe there aren't three actual persons, if we believe God is one person, but the other two members of the Trinity are just sort of modes or extensions of the one person, we embrace heresy. The Trinity consists of three actual real people. These persons love one another. They commune with one another. They delight in one another. Now let's open your Bibles to John chapter 17. 
And I'm going to read just several verses. I hope that later on you'll take time to read this, uh, what has been called Christ's high priestly prayer, Christ's prayer to his Father on behalf of his people. He's interceding for his followers, not just his present followers, he says, but those who would one day follow him, as he says in verse 20. In other words, he's praying for us. Now, one thing he prays here is most striking. I'm going to read verse 3 and then skip down to read verses 20 through 23. And this is eternal life, Jesus prays as the Son to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. So, in eternity past, the Father loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son is eternal, just as eternal as the Father. We call this the eternal generation of the Son. The Son is constantly finding his life and sustenance in the Father. John 5.36 says that plainly. Without being one whit inferior to the Father. The Son wants to please the Father. As every good Son wants to please every good Father. And the Father relishes to exalt the Son. Every good father is proud of his good son, and the heavenly father is proud of his good son. We could only imagine the communion and the delight and the joy the father and son and spirit enjoy with one another. Jesus prays that this glory, this communion between the father and his son, will be extended to his followers, the chosen ones, us, Jesus prays that these disciples, this includes us, may share in that intimate communion, that we will all be one, Father, Son, Spirit, and the disciples. But I'd like to draw your attention to one important fact that we also often don't consider. Jesus says this knowledge and this communion is eternal life. It's not a benefit of eternal life. It is eternal life. Eternal life is communion with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Later, John gives us the reason for writing his gospel that his readers will have eternal life. This is why Jesus came, to bring eternal life, which is to say communion with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Think about it. Jesus came to give us eternal life, and eternal life is communion with the eternal family love of the Trinity. Now, how many times when we hear the gospel preached do we hear this asserted? Trust in Jesus Christ because he came to earth to restore the broken communion between you on the one hand and the loving father and the loving son on the other. Not many, I'd venture. 
But that's precisely why Jesus came. At root, I would say the gospel is a family fact. The loving father and his children. The good news is family love. This isn't the way many conservative Protestants today would put it, but it is the way Jesus Christ put it. Next, consider marriage. We know from Ephesians 5 that the communion between Jesus Christ and his church is a profound mystery. The mystery is that this communion is analogous to marriage. Now this passage, of course, explodes with meaning, and I'll barely touch the surface. I just want to point out a couple of specially relevant truths to us relating to what I'm talking about tonight. While the wife is called to subordinate herself to her husband, oh, and I would say not just anybody's husband, Ephesians 5 doesn't teach that women in general must submit to men in general. That's not what it's saying. The husband is called to cherish and quite literally, I love Robert Gundry's language, he says to, to bosom his wife. That's kind of what it's saying. The husband is called to bosom his wife. He's called to meet her bodily needs and protect her and coddle her just, he does, just as he does his own flesh. That's what he's saying. We coddle our flesh, don't we? If we burn it, oh, we want to take care of that. We want to care for it. Get some medicine on it right away. Well, that's how the husband should care for and coddle his wife. Understand this is what Jesus does with us, his bride, his church. He bosoms and coddles his church. Somebody says, well, I don't like that language. Well, then take it up with Paul. We'll see if you can win that argument. <laughs> Second, the husband's supreme self-sacrifice is laying down his life for his wife. This is precisely what Jesus did for us as his church. And he's the pattern for us husbands. But it's imperative to recognize that Paul isn't teaching here that Jesus died just for separate individuals. We Americans have a very individualistic way of looking at things, don't we? This is why in this passage, Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of the husband and wife. The bride is collectively, collectively, the church. Jesus died for his people as an elect body. In our present individualistic culture, that distinction is extremely important. Ours just isn't a Jesus and me salvation. God makes his saving covenant with covenant people in the covenant bloodshedding of his son. So Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. Jesus coddles and bosoms and nourishes the church. He sacrifices himself in providing for the church. And he gives himself up in the ultimate sacrifice at death. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. It's not just that Jesus paid an abstract penalty for sin. You might get the idea, that idea, if you think only in terms of substitutionary atonement. Jesus paid an abstract penalty that God demanded, and he paid it for me. Yes, but... That's not saying enough. You see, he died for his people. He died for the church. He loves the church. He cherishes the church. And I would say Jesus Christ is emotionally bound to the church. He wants to preserve the church and rescue the church so desperately that to save the church, he gave his own life. That's how much he loves the church. 
This husbandly sacrifice of Jesus Christ is at the heart of the gospel. It's not simply, well, Jesus died on the cross because he wanted to take us to heaven. Or he died because he wanted us to be justified or right with God. True enough. But at the heart is the sacrifice that Jesus Christ, the groom, gave for his bride on the cross. Uh, Now think with me. This husbandly sacrifice is a gospel truth. You don't have a gospel without the sacrifice. And you don't have the sacrifice without the sacrifice of the groom for his bride. This means that marriage is near the heart of the gospel. Third, in John chapter 1, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children, children, children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So God sent Jesus into the world to get more children. Now, we often don't think of the gospel in these terms, but this is one chief way to understand the gospel. And we cannot understand it as we should if we lose this element. God is a father. God is a father. He has an eternal son. He wants more than an eternal son. As we heard in the last superb sermon, he tells us to have lots of children because he wants lots of children. Of course, we're humans, we're made in God's image, and we're not God, and we never can be. You or I can't be a child of God in the same way that Jesus is a child of God. But we can be a child of God. We can be a child of God. And in fact, we are children of God in the only way that humans can be. This, in fact, is what it means to be a child of God. And that's what the Bible precisely calls us. Children of God or sons of God or as it would be daughters of God. Therefore, the gospel is God's family growth plan. The meaning of this expression that's popular, born again, or we would say born from above, as we read in John chapter 3, is precisely how this comes about. God the Father employs his Holy Spirit to supernaturally birth us into his family. And as John 1 just said... We're born not of our own will, but our Father's will. You didn't get here physically because you wanted to. Someone else wanted you to come into the world. That's the parent's choice, not the child's. Parents want to bring children into a world so that they will, be, they will love good parents, so that they will love and be loved, so that they will delight and be delighted. Well, this is why our Heavenly Father brings us into his world. To love and be loved and delight in him so that we can delight in his world and his ways. That's how we become a part of God's family. And we have our heavenly father. And we have a mother, the heavenly Jerusalem, we read in Galatians chapter 4. And we have brothers and sisters. You know a good family delights in each other? The parents nourish and rear the children and protect them and provide for them. The children look to and rely on and honor and obey their parents. The children enjoy each other's company and plan time together and help each other in hard times. 
This is precisely what the Bible teaches us as the children of God and our family, the church, and how we should live. The gospel, I repeat, is God's family growth plan. He has his eternal son that he has always loved, and the father desires more children, and the son desires more brothers and sisters. They refuse to keep all of, get this, the Trinity refuses to keep all of this family love and joy and delight to themselves. God's pretty unselfish, you see. That's why we read in Hebrews 2, one of my favorite passages, that God brought many sons to glory by the suffering of Jesus Christ. For he who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, Christians, Jesus' brothers and sisters, all have one source, that is, they have God as their father. This is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Did you know that Jesus Christ is our older brother? And he stands up for us and protects us and he leads us. Hebrews makes this very clear. We share the same father. So then, the gospel isn't simply good news. The gospel is good family news. The good news is family love. So to review quickly, the gospel means that we join the eternal communion of the loving father and his son by the power of the spirit. The gospel means that Jesus is the church's husband and sacrifices and bosoms us and lays down his life for us to rescue us. The gospel means that the Heavenly Father wants more children and that Jesus, and therefore the gospel, is God's family growth plan and we're part of the family. I'd like to conclude with some very, I believe, pertinent implications for us today in our cultural situation. First, Note that while each of these three facts is a gospel truth, each is rooted in creation. The Heavenly Father and His Eternal Son wanted to extend their communion so they created humans made in God's image. When did they have this communion? Before they ever created anything. Marriage is a creation ordinance, and it was around before the fall. Jesus was the eternal Son of God. He did not become the Son of God in Bethlehem. And did not simply become the Son of God, but also God created Adam as his human son. Isn't that interesting? Luke 3 says that. Have you noticed the genealogy in Luke? The genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. And Adam, who was the Son of God. The Son of God. All of these predated the fall. They are creation truths. Now, the fall introduced great changes into God's good creation, but the, it did not, the fall did not destroy the creation. The fall effaced creation. It did not erase creation. The gospel is the good news adapted to the fallen world, but the gospel operates within the created world and not some other world. In fact, the gospel isn't just about redemption. It's about restoring and enhancing creation. In fact, that's what redemption is. Too often, however, in stressing redemption, and hear this well, these are the words of Gordon Spikeman, and they are very powerful. Too often, we as evangelicals are too quick to get to the cross. Now, that sounds heretical only to people who don't have a biblical worldview. You say, that's pretty stark. Well, let me explain that. The cross is there to redeem something, and that something is God's good creation. 
Redemption always occurs against the background of creation. And that's why the family is a pattern for the gospel. And in fact, if there is no family, there is no gospel. If there's no eternal father and son, there's no gospel. If there's no husband and wife, there's no gospel. If there are no children of God, no Adam as the son of God, there's no gospel. Second, the gospel Protestants have preached over the last century or so has been a truncated gospel. And one glaring aspect of that truncation is its lack of biblical understanding of the basic character of the family. Now, tragically, and this is, think of this culturally, tragically, this omission, this lack of family emphasis and understanding in the gospel, was happening at the same time that our secular culture was assaulting the very foundations of the family. Legalized abortion, recreational birth control, unwed teen pregnancy, pornography, and easy no-fault divorce, and homosexuality, and same-sex marriage, which it isn't, and just machismo, male machismo, that men are just could stomp women down. What an evil idea. And then, of course, the extreme, other extreme, radical feminism, and surrogate pregnancy, and egg harvesting, and artificial insemination, and sperm donation. But you see, the 20th century gospel was all about individual salvation, and forgiveness of sins, and being right with God, and going to heaven when I die. The familial aspect of the gospel aspects were omitted or simply placed in another category. We'll deal with that after you're saved in sanctification or Christian growth. So the important gospel truth was the benefit and future of the individual. Think about it. The church was preaching a radically individualized gospel that neglected the family at the same time that the culture was preaching a radically individualized counter gospel that undercut the family. In other words, our gospel didn't challenge the secular culture at its very heart. For this truncated gospel, we are now paying a very heavy cultural price. Third, think through this with me if you will. I'm almost done. We can't preach the gospel without preaching the family. About the time of the uh, Obergefell decision, some alleged uh, evangelical Protestant churches and organizations changed their position about homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And one reason some of them gave was that if they opposed same-sex marriage, they would cause a division in the church and would hinder the gospel. They say there's unity in the gospel, and same-sex marriage and that discussion sunders this unity that we have. They didn't want to be distracted from their real calling, which is to preach the gospel. The problem is there is no gospel without the family. Think of it this way. We can't understand why Jesus Christ died for the church until we understand that the church is the bride. The church bears distinctive feminine characteristics, and her Lord bears distinctive masculine characteristics. The church is the weaker vessel. The church bears the father's children. The church is utterly reliant on her Lord. But if both spouses are male, we have utterly lost this gospel truth. The sacrifice of the husband for the wife is possible only if the husband is male and the wife is female. This is what the Bible means by sacrificial atonement. 
And it's not compatible with same-sex marriage. Then let's think about a lesbian couple with children, as Dr. Whitehouse was talking about earlier. The Bible teaches that God is our father. The right kind of fathers live and act like fathers. They act in ways that only fathers can act, and mothers cannot and should not act. But if we have no father, if we have only two mothers, we cannot understand what the fatherhood in the gospel means. This doesn't mean that a child without a father in the home, as sadly is the case sometimes, can't know the gospel. But it does mean the gospel must be modeled to him by other fathers nearby, which is why those people desperately need the church. Do you understand that point? Broken families more than anybody desperately need the church of Jesus Christ. Everybody does, but particularly single parents. The specific intentional exclusion, the specific intentional exclusion of fatherhood in a lesbian marriage doesn't just destroy the biblical pattern of things. It destroys the gospel. Let's think quickly about children. They're the product of a loving physical intercourse if marriage is done in God's way. But a child born of surrogate pregnancy, a rented womb, and this is becoming extremely popular in California, that child knows nothing about that loving intimacy at its source. A child born of anonymous sperm joined to an anonymous egg might be loved, but that child was not brought into the world as the result of a loving sexual act at its very root. We children of God are spiritually birthed by the loving act of regeneration by a heavenly father. We were not spiritually manufactured by an abstract God acting abstractly. If we lose the loving personal aspect of this rebirth, we have lost the gospel. In short, and if you've heard nothing else tonight, please hear this. Go away with this line. You cannot get the family wrong and get the gospel right. This is why it'll never suffice to say you're going to set aside family issues and just preach the gospel. If you set aside family issues, you cannot preach the gospel. Fourth, and finally, our job as churches in counteracting this virulent counter-family force in our culture is, are you ready? This is very difficult. Only those of you highly educated or get it. Ready? Preach the gospel. But I don't mean the family-erased gospel of the 20th century, the highly individualized gospel. I mean the gospel that invites sinners to join the communion of the eternal family, the heavenly Father and his Son and Spirit. I mean the gospel of the husband, Jesus, who sacrifices himself even to death for his bride, the church, to which we're called in salvation. I mean the gospel that births us into an entirely new family with a loving, caring Father, with a God-man, Jesus, as our older brother, and with loving and caring brothers and sisters. Understand, these are not simply implications of some deeper and more basic gospel. These are the gospel. And if we've neglected them, we have neglected critical aspects of the gospel. Union with Jesus Christ is union into the fellowship of a father and a son. The death of Jesus Christ is the husband's death. For his bride. Rebirth is birth into the Christian family with brothers and sisters and a dad and mom. 
This is gospel. In preaching and encouraging and protecting and nourishing the family in our churches, we're preaching and encouraging and protecting and nourishing the gospel. We hear a lot about gospel-driven churches and uh, gospel-driven living. This gospel-drivenness is an imperative. And this means we must be family-driven churches who practice family-driven living. By the way, this has nothing to do with the so-called patriarchy movement or family-integrated churches. The church isn't merely a collection of families. It's the eternal heavenly family that is the paradigm, not the earthly family. If we lose that family and the creation family, we lose the gospel. And if we do stress the family as we should, we have been faithful gospel people. In other words, I'm saying, dear friends, the family in its very DNA models the gospel. I know of a Christian couple with two small children. Uh, the husband's parents are both Christians, but the wife's parents, they're divorced. They're not. I've known them for many years. Uh, the unbelieving parents of the wife aren't, aren't actively hostile to the gospel, not outwardly, but they just seem to have really no interest in it. They would come to our church when the kids were baptized. Oh, that's interesting. That's a nice rite and so on. Yet, I must say, as they see, as they see their children, and especially their grandchildren, I'm really, I'm really noticing a subtle shift. Their hearts are softening, and I believe I know why. Because the family is a gospel truth, softening toward the family is softening toward the gospel. Just as a hardening toward the family is a hardening toward the gospel. Listen to this. Peter tells us that an unbelieving husband is won over not by a wife's gospel preaching, but by her faithful, obedient life. In the same way, unbelievers can be won over by the loving, caring family which models the loving, caring family set forth in the gospel. So, I would say this. If we want a successful gospel church, we must be a successful family church. If we want a successful gospel culture, we must be a successful family culture. Because family, in the end, is gospel. Let us pray. Father, we're profoundly grateful for these truths that you have called us to be your children and your son as the husband laid down his life for the bride, us as the church, and you birthed us into a family with brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to understand this important, this essential familial component to the gospel in these times when the family is under attack. And, oh God, because the family is under attack, the gospel is under attack. Help our churches to be family havens in modeling the gospel. We pray it, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.